Mitchell. I'm Taylor. And we're we're the the Barclays. This is our podcast about politics, religion, culture, and all of our opinions on all of the above. This week, we are talking about the COVID relief bill. If you are a regular listener, first of all, thank you. Um, Two weeks ago, we talked about what was happening, the state of play with the COVID relief bill. Now that sucker is passed and we're going to talk about government spending in it and thoughts about government spending, um, particular to this bill and in history. And boy, do we have thoughts on government spending. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that fun, fun talk that we have as a married couple? (laughs) (laughs) I guess, I guess that normal people don't. I don't know. You tell us. Do normal yeah. people talk about this in their marriage? <laughs> we need we need to know. We need to know. Uh, so Taylor, Taylor, you are a great student of history. Will you give us a history of what other relief bills have been like in the past or stimulus bills? I am at least a student <laughs> who's taken history classes and enjoys reading history. Great is probably debatable. And it, you know, we could probably go really far back. Uh, it'd be interesting to know what the very first one was. But uh, we're going to talk about American history because that's the context in which we are in. So the greatest hits of stimulus plans and deals starts with actually the New Deal. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course, uh, 1933 to 1936, uh, through multiple phases, kind of known as the, a first New Deal and a second New Deal creating the Emergency Banking Act, uh, I guess that was the law, uh, creating a bunch of new federal agencies we know and some people love, some people don't love, like the Federal Communications Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission Corporation. Basically the alphabet soup. Alphabet soup. FCC. Tennessee Valley Authority. TVA. And, you know, additional legislation included the Social Security Act, union protection programs, programs for aid farmers and migrant workers, and a series of infrastructure bills that helped build major bridges, roads, other improvements, including the Hoover Dam and Golden Gate Bridge. But this was pretty unprecedented in American history, right? We had never seen such an expansion of the federal government before this. It was definitely a huge expansion of the federal government. And of course, in the context of the stock market crash, troubled economy, a lot of this was to make work and, you know, a new a new deal for the American population. Government stepping in as a uh, provider for people's well-being to help them bridge uh, gaps and maybe uh, finding work. You know, these were 20% unemployment rates, too, at the time. Mm-hmm. And these were the ultimate sort of reactions to, you know, government must do something. And FDR said, all right, government's going to do something. And Congress was aligned in, in it with his ideals and enabled a lot of these programs to pass. And, you know, for example, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, we are still dealing with, and it governs telecommunications and a lot of the communications industry. Uh, it was written in 1934 and was updated in 1996 but most of the language is from that 1934 bill. Wow. And we are still operating in that regulatory structure. And that brings me to one of my favorite Ronald Reagan quotes, nothing lasts longer than a temporary government program. 
Indeed, indeed. You know, quick aside for my favorite government, temporary government program is Amtrak, <laughs> which I think Nixon helped create uh, and said by, gosh, I think 1974 or something like that in the 70s, it'll be, uh, or I think later than that, obviously, because his presidency was in the early 70s. Later, the, uh, I forget the exact date, but it will be entirely self-sustaining and require no more government subsidies, but, <laughs> it, but it's still, you know, a couple billion dollars every year to support uh, trains, because one thing politicians love is the trains. Oh, especially in the Northeast. Yes, yes. Love the trains. So anyway, moving on here through uh, to the next biggest biggest hit, greatest hit for stimulus plans is the just during the Great Recession of two thousand eight, when we were graduating college. That's true. I remember hearing that news here in D.C. Actually, I was wow uh, in an extension program. Uh, President Bush signing the Economic Stimulus Act in two thousand eight. Uh, a Republican, FDR was a Democrat, of course. To uh, George Bush signed this act to alleviate the effects and stave off the recession. The act consisted of $152 billion that included a $600 tax rebate to low- and middle-class households and included uh, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, to stave off the mortgage crisis. Back when we were, we thought a $700 billion price tag was a lot of money. Oh, yeah, that was huge. Remember that? Now it's just a Wednesday. <laughs> Uh, and then the next one, uh, President Barack Obama, Democrat, of course, uh, he signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 in February 2009 in response to the Great Recession. So kind of Bush was on out of office, did some stuff to help alleviate the crisis. Obama came into office and led the charge on this act to save existing jobs, create new jobs, invest in infrastructure, education, health, renewable energy, and provide temporary relief programs for those most effective, affected. And of course, the around that time was Dodd-Frank, the, the famous, maybe to us and our, our friends, banking regulatory bill, which... Basically uh, regulating the bad banks that caused this is what they purported that it was for. Right, that was, that was on the sticker, the label... Um, huge number of regulations for banks and the of course the big banks were involved in <laughs> drafting the legislation and I think one thing that we're seeing the effects of that you know a decade plus onward from Dodd-Frank is uh, there are hardly any new community banks that start hardly any new community banks so it's all the big players because they can deal with the tremendous amount of red tape coming out of Dodd-Frank and um you see this over and over again with kind of these crisis regulatory bills and even these uh, crisis stimulus mm-hmm. packages. It's uh, often under this idea that uh, we have to do something, right? There, yep. We're in crisis. Therefore, we look to the federal government to do something about this bad crisis black swan event that's happened. And of course, now we've got the global pandemic, which is... Uh, you know, cause great economic harm around the world, um, huge unemployment numbers in the beginning. We didn't know how long it would last. Um, last year under President Trump, uh, there were three different bills that were a little smaller in scope than the bill that was just passed um, this week. So in in this week's package, uh, it's you might have received a check already. Uh, I think I read that Wednesday it was hitting people's bank accounts. Um, really under COVID is the first time that there have been kind of these 
big direct payments to individuals instead of, um, you know, t- tax rebates or whatnot. Hmm. Um, like so. in the Bush 2008. Right, right. So getting, you know, money directly in in your bank account. Uh, So this this bill had the biggest aid package. Um, It could be $2,800 if you're a married couple uh, with an additional $1,400 per child. So if you're a family who has four children, that means you could conceivably be getting $8,400 deposited in your bank account this week. Wow. A lot. A lot of direct cash. Um, You know, so this is actually, some people are saying it is kind of the biggest expansion in this COVID bill of the uh, welfare state that we have seen since the New Deal. Wow. That's saying something. (laughs) Because we're still dealing with those uh, programs. I mean, what maybe, maybe we'll talk about this later, but the drivers of government expenditure, debt, are, well, I guess what Social Security certainly is a New Deal program, mm-hmm. Medicare, Medicaid, not as much. Um, those were later, but uh, there. So there is a, a right. difference. Okay. So Medicare and Social Security are what we call entitlement programs. You know, anyone gets those, no matter your income levels. You're eligible for Social Security. Um, and you pay into it your whole life, whereas um, what we call welfare programs are Medicaid, food stamps, housing. Uh, not everyone is eligible for welfare. So there's entitlements and then there's welfare. They're two different types of programs. Got it. Um, so what's unique about this is that in the COVID bill, really welfare or public assistance was opened up to the biggest population that we have ever seen. And it's also um, made eligibility a lot easier. So this is going to be kind of the biggest number of people that the country has ever seen receiving public assistance. And, you know, last year, yeah, it's really a kind of untold story of this. And there's a great op-ed by uh, uh, author Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal that we'll put in the show notes in the email that we send out that kind of goes through this. Um, but there, there was so much in this COVID relief bill. There were state bailouts, um, mm-hmm. which means the federal government is sending massive amounts to states and localities to, um, you know, quote, bail them out of different problems that they're having because of COVID and the economic shutdowns. And, you know, for I I would argue that there was a role for the federal government to do a little bit, um, kind of like we did with the paycheck protection projects and the initial stimulus money to individuals um, because the government caused the shutdown, right? People did not have a choice about going to work or not because the government made the economy shut down in these ah, states. Interesting. So this this is unique, right? It, it wasn't like the other recessions. The government forced everyone to shut down and stay home right. and stop working. And so there needed to be a remedy from the government because the government caused it. Um, but now we're in a place, we, we talked about this in the last podcast, where, you know, President President Biden has said that the vaccine will be opened up to everyone by the end of May. Uh, things are opening yeah. up again. State em- unemployment numbers are going down. You know, you see whole states opening up their entire economies. So right. we're kind of on the upswing from this. So to suddenly 
do this huge expansion of people receiving public assistance when uh, there's no requirement in these public assistance bills to work, train, volunteer um, like there have previously been with different. So different welfare programs have required that in order to receive, let's say, um, food Mm. stamps or temporary assistance for needy family money, you have to work, train, or volunteer for 20 hours a week. So this really kept people um, from lifelong dependence on these programs and helped provide, and states provide, training and education efforts to help get people back to the workforce because that's the ultimate goal because um, work is more than just a job. It's really a sense of dignity. Right, which relates to our Christian perspective on topics, correct? (laughs) That's right. Taylor, what is the Christian perspective on government spending? If there's a crisis, do you think the, what should the biblical response be? Oh, man. I mean. (laughs) I mean, is that all? Yeah. (laughs) The biblical perspective. I mean, the Bible I don't think we've said explicitly before here, but many others have. The Bible is not a political how-to manual. It does not have a chapter about uh, federal government outlays during an economic crisis. Actually, there aren't a whole lot of how-tos, period. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, there are how-tos if you're uh, a Hebrew living in, you know, 1200 B.C., and want to relate to God, but yes, uh, the Old Testament, you know, Leviticus, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, now it's, I think this is, this is a place where we can take uh, principles outlined in, in the Bible, like uh, dignity of work. God created work in the Garden of Eden. So kind of, that's a picture into God's mm-hmm. ideal creation. This is how he set up the world, creating uh, man and woman to organize creation. The job he gave to Adam is to name the animals, to to be in the garden, to tend it, uh, even in a place of free from brokenness and sin. So there's that aspect, and I think you can apply similar principles of you know loving your neighbor, being respectful towards your neighbor, towards the other, um, remembering minorities and the forgotten. Mm-hmm. And then that's where you get divergences. <laughs> uh, you know, so someone like me, a libertarian, much smaller government person, I think the best way to do those things is to limit and lower the size of government. But then you could talk with someone who's maybe on the more progressive side and would say, no, government needs to be involved in order to to mitigate those things. So uh, those those broken features of the world we live in now. And I think... God lets us, uh, you know, talk to each other to use our reason, to use evidence we see around us. Uh, This notion of special revelation being the Bible and word from God and the Holy Spirit and general revelation, uh, the created order, the things he, uh, he has made for us to explore, to unpack. And I think we can have those debates and discussions with, again, applying biblical principles of love and patience and kindness. That's a really great point of um, we can see the character of God and kind of what the biblical calls are to love our neighbor and uh, care for their downtrodden. I think we see that throughout Jesus's words, but you're right where the road diverges is how best to do that. And 
you know, from you and I, uh, we haven't hid our small government proclivities. Um, (laughs) But I would say that, you know, the the charitable sector, um, which in this country is largely, you know, churches and religious ministries um, providing that, I think it's really important for everyone to this is part of civil society is doing your part voluntarily to help. You know, our church uh, converted their basement or the lower room into this huge food bank for the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was amazing to see the church rally to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we were in our own need and had a hard time with um, affording medical bills and making our home accessible, uh, our community rushed to our defense and helped out with that. And, um, you know, if I had... I, I know everyone was not as blessed as us to have that community. Right, um, right. It, in our perfect world, that would be great if if mm-hmm. the community stepped up for everyone like this. And, mm-hmm. and so many people are working towards that. But um, it would have been hours on the phone with, you know, government, the, the equivalent of the DMV for social services, uh, trying to to get money to cover only certain things that the government covers. But I was freed up with... Right charitable giving to have you know all this accessible to me yeah anyway i i digress but maybe we can talk about that in a future episode should we talk about our media stinkers and thinkers now our favorite part of the week i have to look at my notes to remember what i have okay my stinker taylor Uh i am a fan of podcasts that teach about you know easy ways to live and manage money and households and stuff like that. I like learning about that stuff. Well, Thankfully I normally, for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I normally really like the Rachel Cruz show for that. Um, she's the daughter of Dave Ramsey who gives financial advice. Um, but I was a little annoyed with their dogmatism towards credit cards, which I know oh, yeah, may be boy. controversial, but they really, they say no credit cards. You must buy everything with a debit card or cash only. And right. I, think, I think credit cards are kind of like alcohol. If you know that you <laughs> can't handle it, then yeah, don't, don't go near a drink because one drink turns to 20 and you're out of control and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Huh. But if you know your limits, you pay off your card every month, you don't, you know, rack up debt that accrues interest, then you know what? You could be like us and get a free first class flight to Africa. Wow. <laughs> the more you spend, the more you get. Exactly. Apparently. I just I just think that the dogmatism around credit cards, if you know how to be responsible with it, there's nothing wrong with credit cards. Hmm. That's good. That's my stinker. Okay, what's your stinker, Taylor? Award shows. <laughs> and maybe not for the typical reasons. You know, there's this discussion about, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're uh, untoward and gross or they have like values that I don't agree with, whatever. Lewd Hollywood skepticals. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Lewd Hollywood. It's a class of people I've never heard of. But it makes a lot of sense. My thing is just the viewership rates. Uh, the Grammys went down by half compared to last year. Eight million views. Wow. Uh, the ratings for the Grammys. I. But it's for their chattering class. Like it's not for. <sighs> right, which I think broad it's... viewership. It's for the Hollywood insiders. I guess it's it's just like a party for my friends that happen will happen to film it, and you, you can watch it if you want. Maybe it'll just turn into that. Um, 
and then you know i guess the other aspect too like with the the oscar nominees came out and you know i'm kind of i guess i was excited so maybe i'm a little hypocritical about this but it's always a list similar with definitely with the grammys and music like the this list that doesn't include a lot of things maybe that should get listed that were cutting edge and definitely the case for the grammys you know someone who listens to a bunch of music that people don't normally listen to i guess i just feel way underrepresented it's just the you know top hits and like they'll throw in a few tokens but um and this the viewership just down 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 more people are watching things on youtube than the grammys i mean i don't think in my whole life i've ever watched a whole award show from start to finish oh i have yeah (laughs) i had my time in in college post-college um i learned something new about you yeah, I mean, you couldn't tell me, though, when, like, the Emmys, I guess the Emmys happened. The Tonys, oh, my gosh, like, who's, yeah. who's ever watched those? I guess they're theater fans. Hmm. But then it's to your point, right? It's it's like your in-group. But yeah. we should move to our thinker. What's okay. your thinker? My thinker is, oof, this book that I finished, uh, Beneath a Scarlet Sky by author Mark Sullivan, is about this um story in world war ii in italy this uh, like 17 year old boy it's a true story that has been kind of turned into historical fiction but it sounds like it's mostly true um he just lives through these horrors in italy i never had read a, a story historical fiction about world war ii in italy there's so many others about other countries niche yeah it was it was really interesting i learned a lot and uh, it was just, it was heart-wrenching. It had a great twist at the end, which I won't spoil for the viewers. I started reading it because it was non-priced or free, in other words, on Amazon Kindle store. It has like 25,000 customer reviews. Wow. And then I didn't think it was interesting. But then one of our friends mentioned it was good. You started, you read it and enjoyed it, so now I will read it. Uh, on, on to other reading. My, my thinker is Batman as literature. <laughs> Rachel and I have fought over the placement of three excellent, probably like the three core Batman as literature graphic novels. Okay, has every wife fought with their husband on how they decorate like open shelving in their house? (laughs) That's another area where we need feedback, please. Help us know how grounded we are or not to reality. Placement of Batman, yeah, on the bookshelves because, uh, you know, The Killing Joke, Batman Year One... Uh, I think Dark Knight Rises. Um, and I'm reading right now Nightfall, like Knights of the Round Table, not night, but you, know, you get the get the double meaning there. And it's really good. It's, you know, there's themes throughout Batman of morality, ethics, you know, is Batman fighting crime, actually driving more crime because, you know, there has to be kind of this equal amount of power in Gotham City and the art is amazing, and uh, you know, graphic novels generally, I think, should be included more in uh, lists of great literature and things to include in your reading list. Hmm. Well, I have not read any graphic novels. You have kind of showed me more of the virtue of them. However, <laughs> I don't think they belong on our main open shelving in the living room they do. with books like Moby Dick and Les Miserables and all these beautiful bound books. It's actually on the shelf above the Moby Dick shelf. <laughs> it, it should not be there. <laughs> I think it should, and we will keep this discussion going. There's a graphic novel, uh, Moby Dick, or illustrated, I think. That's not going out there either. Okay. <laughs> With that. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening.